Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, uh, we're glad that you're here this morning as we uh, come to God's Word. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is good to see you. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage uh, out of the book, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 22, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 22. You remember if you were here last week that we, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we are returning to our study of 1 Samuel. We started this study in the spring and took a little break during the summer months and now are returning to it and we'll, we'll go until just before Advent season, um, but we'll be looking at 1 Samuel and this morning, chapter 22. And from last week, we know that David has been on the run, that David's life has been threatened uh, and because of this, he ran to the city of the priests, the city of Nob. But there he didn't find refuge. He didn't find safety. In fact, the threat of Saul extended even into that city. And so he ran from the city of Nob and he went to a city in the territory of the Philistines, his enemy. But even there, he couldn't find refuge. He couldn't find safety. So he runs again. And this morning we see that he runs to a cave. He hides amongst the rocks. David is going to remain in this cave for some time. He's going to continue to run. We know this. But even as he's in this place of danger, in this place of, of threat, uh, the contrast between David and Saul continues. So that's one of the themes that we've seen throughout the book of 1 Samuel. As soon as David came on the scene and was anointed as the next king over Israel, we've seen this contrast between Saul and David. Right? Saul is this one who breathes out threats. David seeks peace. Saul is this one who's got great power. David is the one who is reigning. Saul sits on the throne. David's taking up residence in a cave. The contrast is throughout the book, and it will continue until the end of the book, and we see it all the more this morning. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel 22 and see this contrast. David departed from there, that being the Philistines, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet, said, the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, <clears throat> excuse me, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, 
who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait, as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we acknowledge that we need your help. I need your help so that my words would be clear. We need your help so that our minds would be attentive. We need your help so that we would know what it means to follow you, to honor you, to live by your word. And so we ask now that as we come to your word that you would help us, that you would be gracious to us, and that you would be with us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember the first time I saw Gladiator in the movie. Gladiator, this wonderful movie. I remember I went to the theater with my friends. I was in college, and I remember leaving thinking, this is one of my deserted island movies. You know those movies? It's like those movies or those books that you're going to keep with you on a deserted island for all time. The movies you'll watch over and over again, you know, Gladiator, The Godfather, Last of the Movie, you know, those sorts of movies, right? I'm sure that's what y'all are thinking, those movies. But regardless, I, I left thinking this is one of those movies because I love Maximus. 
I love Maximus, right? This incredible story about this general Maximus. He's a Roman general, and, and he is this one who, who becomes a slave, a gladiator. But the slave and gladiator, he rises up and he challenges the emperor and his immorality, right? He challenges his claim to power, this false claim to power. It's a wonderful story. And you love Maximus because Maximus is, is a great leader. He's a great soldier. He's a great man of honor. But as you watch it, you don't just love Maximus, you despise Commodus. Commodus is the complete antithesis to Maximus. Commodus is, is the son of the emperor, and he is squirrely, and he's immoral, and he's hungry for power. Commodus only cares about Commodus. And it's that selfish drive, that concern for self that plays out in the movie. It motivates him to kill his father, the emperor, to take the throne for his own, to condemn Rome's greatest general, and to surround himself with yes-men. It's this selfishness that drives him to try to manipulate his sister. Commodus is about Commodus. Commodus is only looking out for number one. He's only concerned for himself. And in our passage, that's exactly what Saul is doing. It's exactly what Saul is doing. Saul is only looking out for himself. Saul is only concerned with number one. And we see this playing out through the way that he tries to manipulate the people. Did you see it in verses 6 through 8? Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So you hear what's going on. Saul has realized where David is. He's gotten wind that he's still alive. And so he goes to the men who are surrounding him, but he goes specifically to the Benjaminites, which makes sense, because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so he appeals to his kindred. But do you notice that he doesn't try to lead them? He doesn't try to inspire them. He doesn't try to motivate them. What he tries to do is bribe them. He tries to manipulate them, right? He offers them wealth and power. He asks, will the son of Jesse, that's David, Will David give, you, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? And the answer to the rhetorical question is a resounding no. David won't do those things for you, but I will. That's the implication. You should have my back. You should have my support. You should go and tell me where David is because I'm the one who can give you wealth. I'm the one who can give you power. But Saul can't fathom why they wouldn't, right? And so he asks the question, is this why you have conspired against me? <laughs> Saul's a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he maybe fit in well in our day today. But, but regardless of that, right, he, see, he believes that they are plotting against him. And he can't believe this because he's the one who can help them. He's the one who can benefit them. Even his last statement, no one discloses to me. None is sorry for me. Do you hear how passive-aggressive he is? 
He's like this, the child complaining that, that no one loves me, no one likes me in order to incite a kiss or a hug or a word of affirmation. Saul's a manipulator. He's trying to manipulate the people. He's trying to guilt them into telling him where David is. Saul's only looking out for number one. And it works. You see in verse 9, Doeg, the Edomite, shows up again. You remember last week I said that Doeg was like the smoking gun in a murder mystery show? Right? The gun is smoking at the beginning of the story, and we won't find out till the end why the gun is smoking. Well, now we find out. Doeg appears again on the scene. And what does he say? I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So there it is. Saul now has what he wants. He now has the information he's been seeking. The manipulation has worked. And it incites murder. You see, this is the other way in which Saul is looking out for himself. He goes and he kills. He murders. We see it in verses 11 through 15. Saul goes to the priest Ahimelech, to the city of Nob, and he interrogates Ahimelech. And of course, Ahimelech has plausible deniability, because do you remember last week? We talked about why David concocted this story about why he was there and where he was going. And the reason was, was so that the priest could say, when interrogate, if he was asked, I had no idea. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Saul comes and says, why did you care for David? Why did you support him? Why did you help this person that I'm trying to kill? And what does Ahimelech say? Whoa, whoa, time out, dude. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't know that David was your enemy. I didn't know you were trying to kill David. Ahimelech has plausible deniability. And Ahimelech goes even beyond that. And he actually says the truth to Saul. David is a loyal servant. David is your son-in-law, the great protector. He is highly respected. And even though these things are true, Saul won't hear them. David, in his mind, is public enemy number one, and the priests of Nob are simply his accomplices. Now, it's at this point where we should start to wonder and ask, like, like why doesn't Saul just admit he was wrong? Like, have you ever thought that? Like, why doesn't he just go, okay, Jonathan, my son, who loves me, loves this guy and cares for him and respects him and is a friend with him. Okay, that, that should maybe clue me in that maybe I've misunderstood David. To, also, my daughter, whom I love, who I gave to this man, like, she defends him and cares for him. Maybe I've misunderstood. And now the priests right? These holy men, they too are coming to David's defense. Like, why doesn't Saul just go, you know what? I totally messed up. My, my first impression of David, like, I should return to that. He is a godly man. He is a protector. Like, why doesn't he just say, I was mistaken. I was wrong. Well, why don't we? I mean, Saul doesn't say he's mistaken, that he's sinned, that he's wrong for the same reasons that we don't. Because it's much easier to defend our position than it is to admit when we're wrong. When we're confronted by mistake or sin, isn't it easier to blame 
to point the finger, to find a reason why it didn't work rather than admitting our error? You see, the truth is, is Saul isn't really concerned with the truth or with reality. He's only concerned with his own power. He's looking out for number one. And so in his fury, he murders all those who oppose him. And this scene is straight out of The Godfather, isn't it? This is like when Michael Corleone goes and kills all those who oppose him, when he settles all the family business. Except this is far worse than some fictional story. Because it's true. It's historical. This is what Saul did. He, he killed 85 priests. That's what we're told in the passage. Those who wore the linen ephod. And in verse 19, we're told even more that, that he didn't just kill the priest, but he killed men and women, children, infants, ox, and donkey, and sheep. The toll would have amounted to more than 85. It would have been over 100. See, nothing will stop Saul from looking out for himself. All he's going to do is look out for number one. You know, one of the reasons why Commodus in Gladiator is so despicable isn't just because he's despicable, isn't just because he, he's evil, he is those things, but, but his evil and his despicableness, I think that's a word, uh, it is now, his despicableness are made all the more when you contrast him with Maximus. So Maximus, though he has no official title, no official power, though he's under the authority of another, though he's a slave still, fellow slaves and gladiators, they're drawn to him. Even his former servant, when he discovers that Maximus is still alive, he comes to him. People with little or no power, they flock to him. And that's what's happening with David. You see, though David's on the run, Though he makes his home in a cave, though he's in danger, David doesn't look out for number one. Even in his place of vulnerability, David looks out for other ones. And we see this first in the fact that the weak are drawn to him. Look at verse 1. David departed from there, being the, the land of the Philistines, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, I imagine that most of us haven't thought much about David's family, right? We haven't seen them very much throughout the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, probably the last time that we can remember seeing them is when David was going to war against Goliath. You remember he goes to the battlefield, and what his brothers say? Like, what are you doing here, pipsqueak, right? You're the youngest brother. Are you here just to kind of watch and take in the, the battle, right? They made fun of him. They mocked him. But through all that has occurred from that point on until now, David's family would have been under threat as well. Their lives too would have been in jeopardy, right? I mean, they're David's kin. And we know that Saul has no problem killing men and women and children. And so surely if David is a threat to Saul, his family would be a threat. And so they are in danger. And in their danger, where do they go? They go to David. But it's not just his family that runs to him that is drawn to him. Look at verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, 
And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And there were with him about 400 men. David's not building an army here, right? Because if you were to build an army, these aren't the people you'd build it around anyway, right? People who are distressed, who are in debt, who are bitter of soul. Like those don't sound like warriors to me. And for that matter, David's not even calling them to himself. He's not going out and grabbing them. No, instead, they're drawn to him. The distressed, the debtor, the bitter of soul. They're drawn to David almost instinctually. And why? Because unlike Saul, David's going to welcome them and receive them and love them. And so as I read this and I thought about David and I thought about the weak and the needy coming to him, I started to think, I started to wonder, how do the weak and needy see me? How do the distressed see us? People of CTK, Christ the King Presbyterian Church, Penny, how, how do the poor and the lonely the broken and the addicted, the weak and the vulnerable. How do sinners see us? Are we the kind of people, am I the kind of person that the needy are drawn to? See, the needy are drawn to David. What they see in him is not just strength, They don't just see the future anointed king. What they see in him is someone who will give refuge. And that's what they find in David. They find refuge. You see, the weak are drawn to him, and the weak find refuge. And we see David protecting them, providing refuge in a couple of different ways. We see it in verse 3 first, when David takes his parents, and he places them in the protection of the king of Moab. So David takes his family and he moves into this foreign land, right? He goes to the land, actually, of his kin. Because you remember it's his, his great-grandmother or, or maybe great-great-grandmother. I, I can't remember which one. But Ruth, right, who's in the line of David, one of David's grandmothers along the way, was a Moabite. And so David goes to the king of the Moabites and he places his family in their, his protection. But, but David's protection extends beyond even that. We see in verses 20 through 23, one of the priests escapes Saul's slaughter, and the son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, he escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Okay, let's, let's put a pause for just a minute. Take a time out. Think about what David just said. Think about how different this is than Saul. Saul can't admit that he was wrong when he was wrong. But David, what did he say? I have occasioned the death of the persons of your father's house. David isn't the one who wielded the sword. And David isn't the one who called for the sword to come upon them. David isn't the one who is responsible for their death, and yet David holds himself at least partly responsible, doesn't he? 
right? He's, he's realizing, he's seeing. My very presence put them in danger. And so what does he say? He, in essence, he's repenting, isn't he? It was me. I am responsible. I have occasioned the death of the persons of your father's house. How different this is than Saul. David is willing to own even the way, the small way that he may have contributed to this. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He then says to this one who is fleeing Saul's slaughter, he says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Y'all hear that? With me you will be in safe keeping. See, the distressed and the scared, the needy and the weak, they come to David not because there is nowhere else to go. They go to David to find refuge, and that is what they find. You see, David, by taking the priest in, he is aiding and abetting one of Saul's declared enemies. And in doing this, David is continuing to put himself at risk. But David isn't concerned with only himself. He's concerned with the weak and the needy and the vulnerable. He's concerned about others, about bringing refuge to people who are in need, even at his own expense. So y'all, where do you go for refuge? Because here's the thing, we, we want to think of ourselves as David, right? We want to think of ourselves as David, and in many ways, David is exemplary in this passage, right? His life at times is exemplary, and his life at times is a demonstration of faithful walking with the Lord. But, but in this story, do you know who we actually are? We're not the king. We're the run- ones running to the cave, We're the ones in need. Do you see yourself that way? I mean, David himself saw himself that way. Do you remember last week I mentioned that in this season of David running that he wrote many psalms? And we actually looked at a couple of psalms, at least one psalm last week, but there's two more that come from him being in the cave. Psalms 142 and 57. And in these psalms, David says that his spirit faints, that he is in need of mercy, In Psalm 57, he cries out to the Lord. He says his soul is in the midst of lions, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. They are trying to bring about his demise. David, this one who attracted people, who sought to give them refuge, he himself is needy, and y'all, so are we. We too are the needy and the vulnerable, and the weak, and the broken, and the sinner. So where do you go for refuge? Where do you flee? Where do you run? Well, we too are to go to a cave. We too go to the cave, but, but what we find is not a king on the run. Instead, what we find is an empty tomb, an empty tomb that points to a triumphant king. Y'all, that is where we run to. 
That is where we run to. We run to the king who is of the line of David, the king who comes after David, the king who is David's greater son. We run to him because he is the one who welcomes those in distress and he welcomes those in debt and those bitter of soul. He welcomes the tax collector and the prostitute and he welcomes sinners like me. He welcomes sinners like you. And he welcomes us so that we would find refuge and turn from our sin. Friends, we run to Jesus, who is the king, the person of refuge. And like David, he actually puts his life on the line for us, but he goes even beyond that, and he gives his life for us. Because he gave himself on the cross. And he did so not for his own good, but for ours. For mine and for yours. And so, friends, let us acknowledge that we are the needy. We are the vulnerable. We are the distressed and those full of sorrow. We are the sinners who are in need of refuge. And let us run to our king, who does not send us away, but welcomes us. Who welcomes us and provides for us the refuge that we need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given your Son, our Lord Jesus, who is the greater Son of David, the King, who has gone to the cross and has given his life so that our sins would be forgiven. And so we pray that we would not run to the things of this world. We would not run to ourselves, but we would run to the empty tomb. We would run to the cross. We would run to Jesus in whom we find refuge. So Father, lead us in that way and give us the refuge that we need. Allow us to experience the peace and the mercy, the grace and the compassion that comes through our King who has died and risen so that we would have life. And we pray this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.